WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Did you know that we are surrounded by the largest system of fresh water in the world? The Great Lakes house 20% of the world's surface fresh water and supplies drinking water for 30 million people. Now more than ever, they're being threatened by anthropic impacts. Anna hopes to prevent and reduce contamination so that we can stay healthy for generations to come. Today we're here to talk to Anna about her research with PFAS. Anna, can you please tell us a little bit more about your research and yourself? I am in the major of biosystems engineering, and I am a first-year master's student. I'm doing the bachelor and master's linked program in biosystems. My research is focused on PFAS, or PFAS, it depends on how you pronounce it, in the Huron River watershed. So looking at the transport, fate, and sources of PFAS, because they are quite complex compounds. Thanks for joining us today, Anna. Where is the Huron River watershed located in the state of Michigan, and what is a watershed? The Huron River watershed is located in the southeast corner of Michigan. The Huron River runs from Kent Lake area and through Ann Arbor down to the Detroit River. So it's really an important watershed because it covers a lot of ground and it supplies drinking water for over 3 million people. All of the water that falls in this geographical area will eventually flow to the river. The importance of studying things on a watershed scale is that you can trace pollutants, nutrients, and actual chemical such as PFAS or sediment throughout this watershed and make sure that it's all flowing in a healthy way for the ecosystem. Well, Anna, it's been like a year since we've discussed PFAS. Last year, we discussed it in regards to detections with diamonds over our research happening at Fraunhofer. May you please remind our audience what is PFAS and how are you studying it, particularly with the Huron River watershed? PFAS chemicals are actually a group. It stands for per or polyfluoroalkyl substances. It encompasses a group of approximately 6,000 chemicals, which is ever-growing. We are discovering even more of these compounds, and they're a problem to our environment because they are made up of the carbon-fluorine bond, which is the strongest bond found in nature. They are deemed forever chemicals, meaning they don't break down, they are persistent in the environment, so they've been found all over the globe, even the polar bears in Antarctica. The way that I'm studying them is actually not at their chemical structure per se, but more on how do these compounds move through the environment? Where are they sourced? How are they transported? And where do they end up? Whether it's in the watershed or in our bodies. Right, Anna. It's like you said, these chemicals can last for a long time due to their chemical stability. How are these chemicals produced? Are they occurring naturally or are they more man-made? I've seen it mentioned now a couple of times after watching local mid-Michigan news. They are man-made and they are found in our consumer goods because they are both hydrophobic and lipophobic, meaning they are fat-repelling and water-repelling. 
let's tell the word Teflon, which was the 1970s like big boomer that really shaped the industry. It protected both our cookware and our furniture, our carpets, everything. It was mass produced and distributed everywhere. And now we are finding that it degrades very slowly, therefore makes it into both us animals and our water in addition to water repelling like jackets and outdoor wear. I mean, the list goes on where PFAS molecules can be found. Like Danny was saying, we've been seeing it a lot on the mid-Michigan news about how PFAS is everywhere. We normally see them discussing it about aqueous firefighting foam, but they don't normally mention it being in the water. You had said that you were studying where they are sourced and how they're transported. I normally think of cellular experiments where we stain the cells and then we're able to see how things are transported in it. But how do you track these PFAS compounds? Because they're so small, I'm wondering how are you even seeing them? That's another really pertinent problem. These chemicals are so small. And so the detection is through very specialized equipment and testing methods, which are being currently developed by the EPA. There's only so many standard testing procedures, and it's always being improved. And so right now, our testing procedures are down to a level of like seven parts per million, which is so tiny. To give you an idea, it's like a drop of water in 30 Olympic-sized swimming pools. So really, really small amounts, but this is the amount that is actually dangerous for us as humans. And these chemicals are being tested through water samples, soil samples, fish samples, and air samples. And they're testing, I can't tell you exactly how they're doing it. It's not chemical staining, but I believe that it is like a photo detection method. And we are looking at long-term transport. So these chemicals, they stay in the body for like seven years and in the environment even more. So you mentioned the aqueous firefighting foam. Yes, the PFAS compounds have actually been removed from the aqueous firefighting foam since the early 2000s, but we are still finding the PFAS compounds at the military sites and at sites where the AFFF foam was used. These chemicals, they are called ubiquitous persistent chemicals because they stay where they are and they move extremely slowly without degrading, making them a very pertinent problem because they have led, been found to lead to a lot of human chronic illnesses such as liver disease, depressed immune function, and decreased education ability in children and kind of brain development. The list goes on to why these chemicals are bad. Well, that's the beautiful thing about science. There's always more than one solution to solve a problem like the tracking of PFAS through the water like you're studying. The Huron River watershed isn't too far from the MSU campus. Are you physically visiting the watershed to take samples? And how do you study the transport of PFAS in the watershed during your research? I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. I am not actually physically taking samples. Luckily, Eagle in Michigan's Environment, Great Lakes, and Energy Department has been heavily involved in the PFAS research and has developed or set aside a whole team called NPART, Michigan PFAS Action Team, 
who takes samples on PFAS and is really tracking the chemical through Michigan because it has been such a pertinent problem. So Michigan, the state, has been at the forefront of PFAS sampling, which is super exciting. That being said, I get to take the data that they are collecting and put it into a watershed model that is computer-based. So using physical data from the watershed and as well as climatological data and import the sampling data from Eagle to see how the PFAS is moving through the watershed. Is it staying in one place? Is it being sourced from, or are there pockets that we haven't really discovered the source yet? These are the kind of questions that I am going to be able to answer with my model. Going along with how are we looking at it, I am going to be incorporating both a groundwater and a surface water model and hopefully soil as well so that we get all of the aspects of the watershed within the model to be able to have it be the most accurate and the most useful for the watershed to use so that we can do good source tracking and make sure that everyone is safe. I think it's great that you're developing this watershed model, especially now during the pandemic, you're able to compute your model at home safely. So you said that you're gathering this physical data from the watershed and then you're importing the sample data. Is the only way that you can model this through a map? I'd imagine that this is very difficult considering that there are so many types of PFAS chemicals, like you were mentioning there's over 6,000. How are you organizing all of that data? To answer the first part of your question, we model it. I feel very lucky to be able to do all of my work at home. It is really convenient. And it is through maps, not only the geographical boundary maps that might first come to mind, but also we use topographical maps, land use maps, soil maps, climatological maps, all of these different databases that are available via the U.S. government. Luckily, the U.S. is extremely well documented and the data is available so that I can easily take all of these different pieces of the puzzle and put them together so that it creates a really accurate form of the Huron River watershed. And then as far as the PFAS compounds go, yes, there are 6,000, but unfortunately, we aren't able to detect all of them. And not all of them are toxic to create the chronological health problems that I was discussing before. The Two most commonly studied so far, which have become a big problem, are PFOA and PFOS, which are perfluorooctanoic acid, or PFOA, and perfluorooctane sulfonate, or PFOS. With all of this data, I could imagine an art piece from this where people could see the 3D concentrations of PFOS throughout the Huron River watershed. It'd make it easier for people to visualize it. It's great that you'll be able to create these transport models for PFAS throughout the environment, but I'm curious about what other information can come about from this data. Could you do things like make predictions about how long it would take for the PFAS deposits to be removed from the area, or is that something that requires human intervention to clean up appropriately? That is actually the goal of the project, to be able to develop this model, one, like you were talking about, to create public awareness. So hopefully the public will be able to see how the PFAS is moving through it and really become more aware of what they're exposed to. 
And we are hoping to use this model to develop more effective remediation strategies as well as more effective testing strategies. So we can simulate a remediation strategy and see how it actually works. See how the PFAS transport changes or how the amount changes, especially in areas of high recreation and areas that are used for drinking water. Speaking of remediation, I recall from last year's episode that it's really difficult to remove PFAS from the environment and from the human body. I truly see the value of the public being able to see this model and see how the PFAS moves. However, what happens whenever they determine the source of the PFAS? Do the scientists recommend to the state to take certain actions to help remove the PFAS from the environment? Or are they still trying to figure that out? And maybe is there something that the citizens of the community can do to help keep the environment clean? Once a source is detected, it is up to both the industry and the state to come up with an effective remediation strategy. Right now, the most effective one that has been found is called activated carbon filters. And these are relatively expensive, but work really well. They've been implementing them actually at the source so that the effluent from usually a plant, what I've been finding is, for example, a chrome plating facility, which there are many of in the state of Michigan, they might have a wastewater effluent. So the wastewater that comes out of the manufacturing facility would usually go to a wastewater treatment plant before going into the Huron River or really any river for that matter. But the wastewater treatment plants have not been built to to clarify the water enough and remove PFAS chemicals. And in order to do so, it would be extremely expensive for them. So it is up to the industry to actually reduce their PFAS at the site, which is under regulation. So if they don't do it, they will get a huge fine. So what has been most effective is implementing the activated carbon filter at the site so the cleaner water can travel through. As far as what people can do, we as consumers can be more aware. We can use less Teflon material, use less weatherproofed or waterproofed material. If we are aware as a society, we can definitely decrease the amount that ends up in our watershed. At the very least, it's good that there's things like these carbon filters that exist to remove PFAS from the water. This idea behind the removal actually got me thinking about the electronic structure of PFAS in the environment. Does it exist in an ionized form where it has some sort of electronic charge? And if so, what kinds of techniques have people used to break this molecule apart? Or is it an issue that even when the molecule breaks apart, it can just recombine back into a similar molecule again? I'm not sure about ionized form because the PFAS molecules, what differentiates them is not just their carbon length, but also their functional group. So there are a bunch of different functional groups on the head or somewhere along the PFAS molecule. If it's a longer one, then it might be bent. But if it's a shorter one, then it's usually a chain. The PFOA that I was talking about before I believe that it does have some sort of charge. As far as breaking them apart, people have found that the longer chain links can be broken apart both in nature and by man-made intervention. 
they are usually broken down into smaller PFAS compounds. So that means there are only two carbons with a fluorine bond and with the functional group, which is still problematic. So there's this new, what has kind of boosted the amount of PFAS compounds is this new realm called Gen X of smaller PFAS compounds, which they believe to be less harmful, but we're not sure. So there's still a lot of research that's necessary in order for us to dictate whether these compounds are okay in the environment, better, worse, who knows. The big problem with them right now is that they are passing through activated carbon filters. So even though we have a remediation or removal strategy for most of the PFAS compounds, we don't have one for all of them. On top of that, what you were talking about before, that they can be collected, but once they're collected, we're not quite sure what to do with them. Right now, we're thinking that incineration is the only option, but we're not sure if incineration even does the job. It might just be emitted into the environment. There are quite a lot of questions that still need to be answered in regards to PFAS compounds and remediation strategies. The idea of carbon filters still stands out to me. It makes me think that if there's something that can be done as a reaction to the contamination, we should consider doing this in a preventative aspect. Are there other preventative measures that are taken to keep the water clean to avoid the accumulation of PFAS? My research is on a large scale, but individuals have definitely taken a preventative approach, especially to people's homes. So as you mentioned, I talked about the activated carbon filter as being a way of removing PFAS compounds, but also a reverse osmosis system has been shown to also be effective in removing PFAS compounds. The only problem with reverse osmosis is it's extremely expensive, one, to implement, and just takes a lot of water. So it's not very feasible on a large scale or a drinking water treatment scale. Therefore, it's only been used within individual households. But we are hoping that more refrigerator filters, Brita filters, there are a lot of little filters that are becoming a lot more advanced and hopefully will be able to remove PFAS compounds so that we can at least stay safe within our home. Yeah, I've heard reverse osmosis already being used to purify water in different corporations as an example. Hopefully one day we can reach a large-scale version of this water treatment to deal with the PFAS problem for everyone. As we near the end of the episode, could you tell us about the future direction of this project do you plan to adopt this kind of model to other major watersheds in Michigan or one of the Great Lakes? I hope that this model really opens the eyes to a comprehensive understanding of PFAS. Since we know that it travels through all of these different interfaces, the groundwater, surface water, soil, air, it is important to be able to look at it in a full kind of story. So I hope that my watershed model is successful in telling this story and can be implemented on a larger scale to not only areas within Michigan, which is my goal, but also areas in the U.S. and around the world. I hope to one day be able to take all of the aspects 
they are finding that PFAS can actually move into plants as well. So soil to plant, soil to water, air to soil, air to water, all of these different interfaces introduce so many complex problems and questions that I hope to answer through my models. Wow, it's quite concerning that there are so many different avenues that PFAS can travel through. Especially from the plants to the soil, it makes me wonder if it can even travel to like our vegetables whenever they're being grown. That's for a conversation for another time. Thank you so much for talking to us about your very impactful research. Thank you. It was quite a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. The Sci-Files is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Daniel Puentes on Impact 89 FM. Thank you to our news director, Taylor Halterman, program director, Amber Konutsky, station manager, Joe Dandrin, and general manager, Jeremy Whiting. The Sci-Files can be found online on scifiles.org and on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on SciFiles, or if you have any questions, you can contact us at SciFiles at impact9fm.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science.